We're going to continue worshiping the Lord through uh, reading and listening to his word. So uh, just by way of one announcement, uh, we're going to change the title of the message. I know your bulletin says, let's see, what does it say? It says the sin of the people in the city of God. That's kind of vague in general. So uh, we're going to change it to Ezra's madness over Israel's marriages. So uh, that, that's, the, that's the new title. So, uh, so just write that down or do what you got to do. I'm going to read the scriptures, and I'm going to tell you why I changed it. Because there's a, this, this is a pivot point in the book of Ezra. Ezra and the exiles, the second wave, they've made it into Jerusalem safely after a long journey. And everything that happens in the rest of this book is pertaining to one single thing. There's, there's going to be some hard passages that we'll deal with when men actually have to divorce their wives and send them away unless we make the mistake and think that this is primarily driven by race, then we don't really understand what's going on and we don't understand why Ezra's repenting to begin with. And so we're going to zoom in on four verses and um, I pray that God will bless it. So I'm going to read it and then pray for us. Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. And after these things had been done, the officials approached me and they said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites and from the Hittites and from the Perizzites and from the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and my beard, and I sat appalled. And then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, they also gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is profitable for teaching and training and rebuking and correcting. It exposes our sins, that it lays our hearts open. That your word divides us to our very core. It is sharper than a two-edged sword and all men are laid bare before it. We thank you that the sword of your word does not only hurt, but it brings healing and it brings correction and it brings reproof that we might see the world as you see it, that we might see ourselves as you see us, that we might see our neighbor as you see them, that we might see all things as you would have us to. And so I pray that you would do that. Shine light on this text, shine light on our hearts. Make us like Christ, we pray for his sake. Amen. All right, so I just read it. I'm going to do one quick introduction. So as soon as I graduated from college, uh, I got a job in Cincinnati, and uh, I was working for GE. And that's the same summer that uh, my brother also, I, we kind of had the hookup at GE, right, where I got a job, and then 
my brother, we got him on and we had some other classmates. And so I was on permanently as an engineer. My brother was a co-op, I mean an intern. And so it was a big deal for us to kind of move to Ohio and for me to get an apartment and for me to get a real paycheck and for me to be able to have my own place. And so the first thing we did was during the summer, it was during the NBA playoffs. And we kind of came up with this bright idea that we wanted to cook out, right? We didn't own a grill. We didn't, I mean, and it doesn't help that like my dad can cook anything, right? You give him a turkey, you give him anything. He can cook it, smoke it, fillet it, you name it. And so I think we just kind of assumed that those jeans would just kind of rub off, right? <laughs> we kind of assumed that, hey, just, just go and just grab some meat and grab a grill and it's going to work out. Well, we went to the store and uh, we bought a slab of ribs and we bought chicken and we brought all this other stuff. It's my first time barbecuing, right? And uh, yeah, I was, I was like 22. My first time doing it myself. I was so busy. Whenever he cooked, I never wanted to sit down and get lessons. I was always an eater, not a cooker. <laughs> and so we got the slab of ribs and uh, we put it on. We had really high hopes. We're going to watch the, the finals of the NBA championship. We're going to grill out, kick back, and we're going to have a good time. And so we put the grill together, put the coals on, put the lighter fluid on, put the meat on. And about two hours later, it was awful. <laughs> it was absolutely awful. I forgot to take the little, you know, when you cook ribs, you got to take the little, what's the little piece of skin that you got to take off on the back? I forgot to take that off. I didn't wash the meat. <laughs> and it was like gritty, like it just kind of, it was a gritty taste to it. And I, I didn't know that you kind of had to let the lighter fluid cook off of the coals. <laughs> and so it was like lighter fluid, gritty, like it was just, it was awful, right? And so. We had to trash it all and had to go and buy food. But we just kind of met with that disappointment. You know, we had a, a really high expectations that we can do this. And it was way harder than we thought. We didn't know how hard it was going to be. I mentioned that because Ezra is in a position very similar to that. That he's not like Nehemiah. Nehemiah, when you read Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah gets word that the city is, is in trouble, it's, it's just torn down. The wall isn't working. So he's not the third wave when Nehemiah goes, and he's not the first wave. When the first wave of exiles returned, they did not have a temple. And so they actually went back to rebuild the temple. Ezra's coming, he's coming like on the, on the, at the good part, right? The temple is built, the people have been settled, they've been there eight years. This is going to be a piece of cake. We're going to walk in there. I've been, I'm a scribe. I know the law. We're going to train them and conform them to the image of the Lord. And then he gets there, and he's slapped in the face with this right here. I'm not going to tell you what this right here is yet. I want to kind of keep that tension there. But I want to look at this radical response. I want to look at the response. When Ezra comes, if you saw this man doing what he was doing, you would think he was on something. I mean, if you would literally think he is under the influence of something. And I want to look at, like, what is it to, why, why is this dude doing that? Like, what's going on there? Then I want to look at, so I want to look at his response. I want to look at what's the real offense. There's a response, but beneath the response, there's something driving him to act that way. And whatever it is that's driving him to act that way, we also need to look at that risk. 
because that's going to help us understand why he's reacting the way he's reacting. So I know I'm kind of talking, talking cryptically, but just stay with me. Look at his response. Now, let me give you a paint, paint a picture. Ezra gets there and you've been with us for the past couple of weeks that this was a five, four to five month journey from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem. They had hiccups at the Ahava River. First, they didn't have Levites. He had to send people back to go get Levites. And then they were afraid because they're coming through the entire wilderness with about $144 million worth of silver and gold. And they did not have horses and they did not have soldiers. It was just them. So there was fear. And here in our text, he finally makes it. But notice what happens that it says that in, in chapter one, I mean, verse one, after these things had been done, well, what things had been done? So go back up into chapter eight and you see it that after they got there in verse 35, they went into the temple and they had offerings and sacrifices. And then look at verse 36. And then they delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people in the house of the Lord. And so what we think happens is Ezra gets there, he unloads everything they've been traveling with, right? And then he still has the king's business to do. He still has to dip out and leave Jerusalem and go all up into the foreign lands and to make peace with all of the other satraps. These were the local governors letting them know that, hey, King Artaxerxes has sent me and he has asked me to collect taxes from you so that we can build this temple. Ezra had some work to go do and he finally finished that and it took him about four to five months because we get that dating later in the text. And so now he's finally back. He's finally back and look at what happens. The officials approach me as soon as he gets back in the town and he gives them this news. Now we'll look at the news in a minute. But notice what he does. Look at the first thing he says. When I heard this news, I tore my garments. I'm down there in verse three. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and my beard. Now think about that. Like this guy literally strips himself, his outer garment, his undergarment, and starts to pull out his beard and pull out his hair. And then the text says he sat there appalled. All day long, from the morning until the evening sacrifice, I just sat there in utter disbelief. You see that he looks crazy. Unless you know that this is grief and mourning, hurt and sadness. You see, when Job lost his kids in Job chapter one, Job says, I cut my hair, I shaved it. And I tore my clothes and I fell down on the ground that he was so paralyzed with losing every single thing that it literally brought him to his knees. And that's what's happening in our text. Ezra has gotten news that has completely taken the wind out of his body. It has completely caused his knees to buckle and he just stays there all day long in disbelief. Now, why is he grieving? He's grieving because in his mind, I think he's thinking that reforming God's people, you would think that we have been in exile. We, Nebuchadnezzar has taken us away. Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, we've been deported out of the land. You would think that we're back now and we can just get it together, but there can't get right. You seen the movie, can't get right? He can't get right. Like he, it, it's the movie Life and he's a, he's a person in the movie and he can do nothing right. Like he can do absolutely nothing right except play baseball. But they call him can't get right. And that's Israel. Amazing promise 
but they can't get right. Like God's hand has taken them out of Babylon. God's hand has given them silver and gold. God's hand has sent them Levites. God's hand has got them there. And in Ezra's mind, this doesn't compute. How can we, how can we, when God has been so faithful to us, do what's happening right here, right now? And it says that I trembled and people came around me who trembled at the fear of the word of the Lord. In other words, God isn't to be played with. Do you not know we just came out of exile? Do you not know that he does not take sin lightly? And he's just right there on the ground in grief. He loves God's glory. He loves God's city. He loves God's people. He loves God's word. He loves God's name. And what he sees creeping in is indifference. And it has paralyzed him. It's caught him off guard. That's the response. He's deeply grieving, deeply hurting, deeply frustrated. Now, here's the thing. Like if you if you play soccer, right, there's a such thing as a yellow card and there's a red card. Yellow card, you can get back in the game. And if you get another yellow card, you kicked out. Red card, you don't get another card. You get kicked out of the game right then, and then your team cannot put another player in for the rest of the game. So you don't play with 11, you play with 10 for the rest of the game. And here's the thing, that that card is usually issued when something is very heinous. When this offense was intentional, it was deliberate, it was planned, it was vulgar. The offense, the giving of the red card is tied to the offense. The, their reaction is tied to the offense. When you see Ezra reacting like this, the question that we have to ask is, what, in, what is the offense? What is causing this man to act this way? What's the offense? It's a real offense. Before we get into what it is, I want to get into what it isn't. Some people have read this passage and they have formed theology that basically says that the Bible condemns interracial marrying. And it's easy, right? Just, 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 just read it. Read it casually without, without your detective eyes, without us knowing the full aspects of the gospel, without us knowing that we are one in Christ and dividing walls of hostility have been torn down in Jew and Greek. Without knowing that, leave that here and then read this text casually. You might be able to read the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, from the Canaanites, from the Hittites, from the Perizzites, from the Jebusites, from the Ammonites, from the Moabites, from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, for they have taken some of the daughters and wives for themselves, for their sons. This holy race of God has been mixed. And so it's easy to look at this and think that the offense is this. Israel have married Moabites. That Israel have married Amorites, that Israel have married Egyptians. In other words, we're talking about you look different, you talk different, your culture is different. And, and what, what Ezra is doing is pulling his hair out, out of his beard and out of his head because they have married outside of their race. Now, you don't think this is real? This was written in 1964 by a guy named Morton Smith. And it's an article, The Racial Problem Facing America. 
The Christian segregation is it's a long quote, but stay with me because th this is out there, right? The Christian segregationist fears that the real goal of the integrationist is ultimately the intermarriage of the races and therefore the breakdown of that distinction between them. Many who would be willing to integrate at various lesser levels refuse to do so simply because they feel that such would lead to the intermarriage of the races, which they consider to be morally wrong. The people commanded not to marry other people, and this was to preserve their racial integrity. Ezra, he quotes Ezra right here. Ezra speaks about maintaining their ethnic purity by not intermarrying with non-Israelites. If diversity is God's revealed way for mankind, one wonders about any program that advocates intermarriage of diverse races in a way that will eradicate the differences that God has established. The present writer feels that the intermarriage of persons of two races is something most undesirable. 1964, the church has gotten this wrong, right? The state has gotten this wrong. In 1924, the Racial Integrity Act of Virginia was passed, and it prohibited the marriage between people classified as white and people classified as colored. And it divided society into two categories, white or colored, and colored was any person with one drop of African or Native American blood. And it criminalized all marriages between white and non-white person. This law was challenged in June of 1967 with Loving vs. Virginia and it appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. There's a movie that just came out and it's called Loving. And it is about this right here. Black woman married to a white man. They appealed to the Supreme Court in 1967. That's 50 years ago this June. Some of you were alive when this happened. The church has gotten it wrong. The state has gotten it wrong. Culture gets this wrong, right? I don't know if you listen to Beyonce, <laughs> but some of you know. I know some of you do, right? And you know, you know, you don't stir up the beehive, right? That's the thing. You don't stir up the beehive, right? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Beyonce dropped an album a few months ago, and there was a line in one of her songs where she accuses this person in the song of messing with Becky with the good hair. Some of y'all laughing because you know exactly what that line is, right? And it, it sent her fan base wild. Who is the Becky with the good hair? That's a, a, that's a subtle sort of, that's a non-African-American woman. And, the, the, and when Beyonce said that, it stirred up everybody. Wait a minute, I know Jay-Z ain't, 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 like really. <laughs> so she said, I'm serious, some of y'all laughing. It's the truth, it really happened. The state will get it wrong. Culture will get it wrong. The church will get it wrong. We all have these blind spots, right? Here's the thing, though. This passage isn't about them marrying a different race. It's about them marrying outside of their faith. It's about them marrying outside of the faith. And that is why Ezra is pulling out his beard. That's why he's pulling out his hair. That's why his clothing is torn. Go back to with me. We've got to play detective right now. But keep your Bibles open. 
First thing, look at Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. They have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. What does that next phrase say right after that? With their abominations. All right, so I got some people talking back to me. All right. Go down to, go down to Ezra 9. Look, look at Ezra 9. We're, we're going to get into his prayer, but look at Ezra 9, 10 and 11. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure. With the impurities of the peoples of the land, what is that next phrase? With their abominations. Go down to Ezra 9, 14. When, look at what he says. Shall we break our com- your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who do what? They practice what? Do you see every single time Ezra talks about the people of the land, it is not just their race. It is not just their culture. They don't worship their God. That's why God is upset That's why Ezra is upset. The people of Israel have married pagans who are still in their sin, who still have not bowed the knee to the Lord, who still have not sought forgiveness. That's the the, the center point of the anger and the frustration in the passage. It's not race. It's not that. Now, we know this, right? You know, when the Lord, you see Egyptians and you see Moabites, in this text. But you know, when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, those 10 plagues were not arbitrary. They worship the sun. And so the Lord says, you think the sun is shining on its own? I will shut it down. It obeys my voice. You worship water and you think this Nile River is giving you life. I'm shutting it down. I'm turning it into blood. You worship creeping things that crawl that Paul talks about in Romans chapter one. You worship these things, these created things. I'm shutting it down. You worship Pharaoh. You think Pharaoh is a God. You think that you can mummify his body and he's coming back. I'm killing him and his whole whole family. I'm taking his first son. That was an assault on his whole reign. What God is doing in Exodus is showing Egypt and showing his people, I am the one true God. There is no one out there like me. And you need to know that it is by my hand, my mighty arm, my outstretched arm that you have been delivered. It wasn't about Israel. It was about God and God's glory that he will not share with anyone. And so you see the same thing in in Ruth. Naomi has two two sons, and those two sons marry two Moabite women. It says Moabite women, and her sons die. And the two Moabite women come down to Naomi, and Naomi says, go back. And one of the daughters, it says she went to her people, and she went to her gods, plural. And you know what Ruth says? I'll go where you go. Your people are now my people. Your God is now my God. She's a Moabite woman who comes into Israel. Here's the thing. You know when they went into Canaan? So I'm going to give you some evidence that God is not anti as we think it might be. When they went into Canaan with Joshua, they went into the very first city. You know what the first city was? Jericho. 
And you know who got spared out of Jericho in the Canaanite city? The Canaanite prostitute by the name of who? Rahab. And you know what the text says? That Rahab left Jericho with Israel and she died as an Israelite. She came in and was with them in her entire life and she died, her and her family. Now, here's the thing. You do know that she married a Jewish man by the name of Salmon. And Salmon, they had a son named Boaz. So get this right. Rahab, who's a Moabite, marries, I mean, she's a Canaanite, and then she marries a Jewish man, Salmon, and then they have a son, Boaz. So, so Boaz, right? Boaz is what? Half Canaanite and half Jewish. Now, put him on hold for a minute. You got this other narrative that's happening, right, with Ruth and her people. Ruth's son, I mean, Naomi's son died, and, and Ruth comes in, who is a Moabite, who comes in and, and stays with Naomi, and guess who she marries? Boaz, right? So think about that. Ruth marries Boaz. She's a Moabite woman, and she marries a half Canaanite and a half Israelite man, and then they have kids, and they have Obed, and they have Jesse, and then they have David. And then they have who? Jesus. When you go to Matthew, Jesus, right? So if you take the theory that if you have any one drop of any other race and you are colored, then you think about Jesus. He is not perfectly Jewish. He is not perfectly Jewish. There is Canaanite and Moabite blood in the very blood of our Savior. See what's happening? Your savior is not ethnically pure. Your savior is mixed. He got other stuff in his blood. He's not pure. Ezra is upset that they have married outside of the faith. I can take you to Ezra chapter 6. In Ezra chapter 6, look at what it says. When they eat the Passover and get the temple built, you would think that the Passover was eaten. The first Passover after the exile was eaten by the Jews alone. Look at what it says in Ezra chapter 6, verse 21. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. Look at that. And also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast. And they, who is the they? The they is the Israelites and whoever else it is that left their gods to come and worship the one true God. It is not a race issue. It's a worship and faith issue. That is why he's upset in this passage. That's why he's pulling out his hair. Here's what this means. That if you're in the Lord, you have immense freedom to date and to marry. Outside of your race, outside of your culture, outside of your class, and don't you let anyone else tell you otherwise. I love this church. We're adopting cross-culturally. We're marrying cross-culturally. And it is a testament to the unifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ where we can look at a little black baby as two white parents 
and love them as our own. Or we can have a daughter or a son who brings home someone who is ethnically, ethnically, racially different. And as long as they are in the Lord, we can be behind it. Part of the gospel. But this also means. While it gives us immense freedom. It also brings boundaries. In other words. Every Mr. Right might not be Mr. Right. And every Miss Right might not be Miss Right. And she can be the right race, the right age, the right height, the right body type, the right, right, right. And if she does not have Jesus, then she's wrong. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And that is hard to hear. That is very hard to hear. I looked up one, a few scholars who were Jewish rabbis who wrote around this time, and they gave three basic reasons why they think the men acted like this. I don't know how accurate it is, but I think it's pretty valid. One reason, they said, was that the proportion between the men and the women were so low that the men were without suitors. And so what they did was they went outside into the countries around them to marry. That's one option. Another option is that these were social marriages, that these men married these wealthy, the, the daughters of these wealthy landowners around them, and so their marriages brought financial security. And finally, another guy by the name of Johanan, who was a rabbi, he says that that travel, those four to five months, and then going back and rebuilding this city, that it really took its toll on the Jewish women, that they aged faster, their skins were darkened. And I'm serious, and you can go read Malachi, these cats were putting their wives away and then marrying foreign wives, right? Look, I don't know if all of it's true, but if you're single and you're getting on up there in age, don't you wonder? Don't you wrestle with singleness? And isn't it tempting to desire someone who has the right everything but is not a Christian? And doesn't it hurt to die to that? Doesn't it hurt to be in that place to die? It's not about race. It's about faith. Well, if it's about interfaith marriages, then what is the risk? What is Ezra worried about? And to get at this, you kind of have to understand how God viewed Israel. You see, Israel, they were one nation. And depending on if you want to split them up, they were two. But let's just say that they're one nation. And every nation, were, they were divided into what? Twelve tribes. And every tribe was divided into clans, and clans were divided into households, and households were divided into marriages, right? And so you see this in Joshua when they go and try to do battle with a country, and they can't defeat them. And, and Joshua's on the ground, and the Lord says, get up. There's sin in the camp. There's sin in the camp. And he says, meet me tomorrow. And I want you to bring all of the tribes here and we're going to sort them out. And he, the Lord sorted them out down by tribe, down by clan, down by household, down by man. And he killed that man and everything about him. You see what's happening there? 
There's a connection. What God wanted for the nation, it started in the family. It started in the family unit. The strength of the nation was tied to what the families and marriages were. And so what did God want for Israel? What did he desire for them to be as a nation? Because that's what he desired in the marriages. He desired that they would be a holy nation for his own possession. And he desired that they would live missionally and be a light for the nations. Those two things, you are wholly set apart, dedicated to me for mine own purpose. I passed by you and I saw you wallowing in your blood and I said to you live. And I chose you not because you were big in number and not because you were special. I set my love upon you because I set my love upon you. I chose you out of all the nations to be mine. You are a holy race, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for me. Set apart for me. Holy. And you see it in the text. When Ezra grieves, he says the holy race have intermingled. He is not talking about that they're so holier than now that they can't affiliate with unbelievers. That's not the issue. The issue is the seed of the woman is marrying the seed of the serpent. He says, no, you can't do that. You keep it in the family, but not your ethnic family and your family of faith. You keep it right there. Holy and set apart unto the Lord. That was one part of their identity. The other part was you will be salt and light of the earth. You will be a light for the nations. When the nations see you, they will see your dealings. They will ask you, what is this God? They will hear about your redemption story and they will come in. You're set apart. But you're not of them. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. That was their sacred identity. And here's the thing. In the book of Ezra, you see them both. You see them over here doing business with the nations. They got money from Artaxerxes. They got trees from Lebanon. They got fish from the Tyrians and the Sidonians. When they built their temple, they did business with the nations. The Lord was not saying, you're so holy than thou that you can't intermingle and you can't do business and be friends with the nations. No, go and practice commerce with them. But you can't marry them. And you see this in Nehemiah. When Nehemiah comes in Nehemiah 13, It's a beautiful passage. They're selling fish and stuff at the temple and Nehemiah comes. I mean, this dude, he needs like some anger management classes. (laughs) Look at Nehemiah 13 and I'm going to show you this distinction. I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Amnon and Moab. Well, we're not going to go there yet. We're going to go to Nehemiah 13. Tyrians who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and they sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. What is this evil that you are doing? You are profaning the Sabbath. I gave orders that the door should be shut and not open on the Sabbath. It was not about what they were eating. It was about when they were doing it. You're buying fish on the Sabbath. I don't care if you buy fish tomorrow or the next day or the next day. Do business with them, but you don't profane the Sabbath. Why? The Sabbath is holy and you are holy. And this day has been set apart just like you have been set apart unto the Lord. 
It was never, ever holier than thou. Don't mess with the nations. Don't, you know, all of that. It was both. And here's what happens. When you marry, those outside of the faith, you are joining yourself in an intimate and permanent way to someone who has not bowed the knee to the Lord, who does not see their need for a savior, who has not tasted of his grace and deliverance. And then the very light that you should have, which is supposed to be shining together out of the marriage, will have water and darkness doused on it, even in your own home. That's the danger. And here's a case study. It's in Nehemiah 13. He says, I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab, and half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of their people. And I cursed them, and I beat them, and I pulled out their hair. Like, anger management, right? But you hear what he's saying? And listen to what he says to them right after that in verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on an account of such women that among many nations there was no king like him and he was beloved by God and God made him king over all of Israel? Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. That is the risk. That's the risk right there. Nehemiah tells you what happens. They intermarry with faithless people. And their faith is weakened. Their kids don't know Hebrew. Their kids don't know Yahweh. That's the real danger in the text. It's this. Now, I'm going to close with a quote by Tim Keller. It's a long one, but it's from his book of marriage, and it's going to pull it all in, right? For believers in Christ... Despite enormous differences in class and temperament and culture and race and sensibility and personal history, there is an underlying commonality that is more powerful than them all. This is not so much as a thread, but an indestructible steel cable. Christians have experienced the grace of God and the gospel of Christ. We have all had our identity changed at the very root. And so now God's calling and love are more foundational to who we are than any other thing. And we long for the same future, to journey to the same horizon, what the Bible calls a new creation. This means that any two Christians with nothing else in common but common faith in Christ, you can have a robust marriage, helping each other on their journey towards the new creation, as well as doing ministry together in the Word. Do you see what he just said? Despite differences, a common steel cable thread of Christ rooted in the new work of Christ on your life, it compensates for all differences. You can have a strong marriage and you can do ministry together in the world. You see that? You see the two things? 
This principle that your spouse should be capable of being your best friend in the Lord is a game changer when you begin to question compatibility of a prospective spouse. If you think that marriage is largely erotic love, then compatibility means sexual chemistry and appeal. If you think that marriage is primarily social status, then compatibility means marrying someone with a desired social class. The problem with these factors is that they are not durable. Physical attraction will wane. No matter how hard you try to stop it, we will age. Socioeconomic status can be lost overnight. When people think they have found combat compatibility based on these things, they often make the painful discovery that they have built their relationship on unstable ground. Long quote, good quote. We're going to bring it home right here. So why talk about it? One, Ezra's going to do some serious repenting in the next coming weeks. And we need to know why he's repenting. It is not interracial marriages. It is interfaith marriaging, marriages that's driving this repentance. We're a multi-ethnic church with multi-ethnic marriages and multi-ethnic adoptions. And we need to hear that collectively, that our common faith in Christ, it has to trump our race. There were a church of numerous single people, 379 to be exact. If you want, that's a plug, go out there. <laughs> All right, go out there. The new breeze system that we need you to put your information in, put it in, right? I can do a click right now and I can click who's single between this age group and I can tell you right there, go fill your stuff out. Here's what this means. It means that we have 379 people who are wrestling through this very issue of marriage. Who's suitable, who's not? How do I be shepherded through this process? We need to talk about it. If the Lord sends you a suitor, it's tempting to look at attraction. It's attempting to look at zeros. It's attempting to look at stature. Wait on the Lord. Faith is first. We have kids. And if we don't talk about the issues of race, we know the world will do it. And we know culture will do it. And we know the church can do it incorrectly. So it's to our advantage to talk about this stuff right here, right now. And some of you are probably in interfaith marriages. And it's hard. And I know it's hard because I've talked to someone and they are not members of this church. But she's married a person who is not a believer. And she asked to meet both of them together. And there's a place of intimacy that they don't have that's deeper than intimacy in a bedroom. There's a worldview that's lacking. And I want to say that I, I know that some of you in this room 
are in those situations where you are probably married to an unbeliever. The Bible does not say divorce them. Paul says stay with them. How do you know that they might not be saved through you? But I want to enter your grief and say that I know it's hard. Stay the course. Be salt. Be light. The Lord will work. Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you and pray that you would do a new thing in our hearts. I pray that we would have a big view of a big Jesus and his atoning work on the cross that has reconciled enemies. That there is no Jew or nor Greek, nor slave, nor free. We are one in Christ. That dividing walls of hostility, they have been torn down right there on the cross. I pray that you will have us to see anew, to see each other as you see each other. I pray that you will rally us around our unity of faith. And I pray that that would be something that we experience and care deeply about. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.